This episode of Haunted Places contains references to the death of children and brief mentions of suicide. We also advise caution for listeners with a fear of heights. Anna and her best friend Farah had decided to find themselves on the highways of America, and to stream it, of course. They had reached the most iconic spot of all, Yellowstone National Park. Attempting to pet the buffalo on camera had not gone so well, so Anna was left with only one option for the hashtag no filter shot of the day, Yellowstone Falls. She knew a spot at the observation point would be too basic, so she decided a little hike was in order. They headed towards the Red Rock Trail in search of a good vantage point. Anna left the trail line as Farah grumbled something about backpacking in Europe being far less hilly. Early in their trek, Farah looked up sharply toward the falls, saying something was watching them. Anna's gaze darted from tree to tree. Nothing. She thought she heard someone whispering in her ear, but she dismissed it. They dodged the signs and railings and found the real wilderness, cutting through trees and rocks until they reached the edge of the cliff. Anna started to set up her shot, hoping to capture the light glinting off the rushing water and pooling mist. Farah told her to be careful, but Anna waved off her concerns. She stepped closer to the edge, scanning the area through her viewfinder, trying to find her light. Anna could have sworn she saw a figure watching through the white water. She crept closer to the edge. Farah repeated her warnings. Anna ignored her, tilting her camera up slightly, then lowering herself into a crouch. Yes, this was perfect. Just enough sky, but not enough to overwhelm the composition. She settled into a crouch and began shooting. This is what all that Pilates had been for. But something had changed. It was like the sun had moved. No, that wasn't right. Anna took one more step. Farah screamed at her. Anna told her to wait on the back trails if it bothered her so much. She took another step. The figure behind the water waved. The falls shuddered as the white water began to fold impossibly, drawing out the features of a sinister face, 300 feet high and growing. It smiled at Anna. Her camera hit the rocks before she did. Welcome to Haunted Places, a ParCast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Yellowstone Falls, a majestic waterfall with a strange and suspicious history of falling deaths. And discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Listen to more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. There have been humans in the 3,468.4 square miles known as Yellowstone National Park for over 10,000 years. This iconic bit of wilderness has acted as a home and or hunting ground to the Paleo-Indian Clovis, as well as the Sioux, Shoshone, Nez Perce, Comanche, and Blackfeet, among others. But Yellowstone is most famous for its thermal geysers and its wildlife, which includes wolves, grizzly bears, and bison. Yellowstone was incorporated as America's first national park in 1872, only shortly after it was first explored by representatives of the United States. The park includes land in both Montana and Wyoming and is named for the Yellowstone River, a 692-mile-long tributary of the Missouri River. The name itself is attributed to the Minnetari or Hidatsa tribe, though which set of Yellowstones they're referring to has been lost to time. As the Yellowstone River flows north, it plunges over two waterfalls before crashing into the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, 1,000 feet below. It is said that a party of white militiamen and their crow guide were crossing by the lower Yellowstone Falls when they were horrified to see a group of Shoshone Indians whose canoes had been swept into the falls' inescapable pole. The legend reports that each of the Shoshone chanted their own individual death song as they fell, and that two eagles dove into the canyon after them, only to be consumed by the spray. There's little to no substantiation for this legend, and it's far more likely that the story is just another installment in the apocrypha surrounding stolen native land. One doesn't need a mystical tale to understand the unease a visitor can feel while looking out over the falls. There have been enough freak accidents and gruesome deaths at Yellowstone to give anyone pause. And it's not just the result of people getting a bit too distracted while trying to get that selfie. The Yellowstone Falls have been dangerous for a long, long time. Jacob Havoc always felt he took after Thoreau, and as he didn't see fit to join President Wilson's Great War, it seemed the perfect time to strike out and be one with nature. He enjoyed the irony of hiding from the U.S. Army in a national park, so Yellowstone it was. He'd walk a few trails, fish in the stream, and write beautiful, profound poetry. But the words didn't come. Only slightly worse was the revelation that traveling in the wilderness alone was more difficult than he'd first imagined. While he hated the high society life he'd left behind, the time alone was starting to drive him out of his mind. He'd been in Yellowstone for several days now and hadn't seen another soul since he'd entered the park. Jacob found himself conversing with the birds to keep himself occupied. 
but when he started knocking on a tree to make a point to a woodpecker, he knew things had gotten out of hand. And once the bird flew off, he was alone again, left with the wind and the rushing water. He found himself yelling sometimes, just to fill in the silence. But the quiet after the shout was worse somehow, mocking. His savior came in the form of a wiry man named Logan Norris. Jacob would never have interacted with the man under different circumstances, but beggars couldn't be choosers, and Jacob was confident that he'd find a purpose for the man yet. They agreed to take Uncle Tom's trail together towards the lower Yellowstone Falls, but the pencil geysers came first. Signs had been nailed into the trees, proclaiming the dangers of the park. Jacob had seen them so often that they'd ceased to hold any meaning to him, but Logan stopped to examine each. One sign showed an image of rocks falling off a cliff. Another spelled out the danger in words rather than pictures. They were dotted along the trail at even intervals, meant to catch anyone who might not realize just how powerful Mother Nature could be. Jacob had never been afraid of the danger that lurked in nature. He found it far more benign than the Wall Street traders with their razor smiles, or the enterprising women in search of rich husbands. With nature, you knew what you were getting. You didn't have to pretend to approve of your own potential demise or discomfort. You simply took what you wanted when you wanted it. Jacob could feel the wet heat from the geysers before he saw them. Gray clouds of steam blocked their view as their cheeks flushed red. Jacob removed his handkerchief and wiped at his brow. Logan used his shirt sleeves. The heat lingered around them making the air feel heavy, almost gelatinous. A clearing opened up ahead of them. In the middle was a blue and yellow pool of water. It looked inviting, and after the heat they'd crossed, they could use some fresh water. But it was not the kind of water that one could drink. It would boil the flesh from their bones and leave nothing behind. Steam rose around them, surrounding Jacob like he was a devil in hell. Jacob picked up a fallen tree branch and dropped it into the geyser. It dissolved in seconds. For a brief moment, he wondered how long it would take Logan to melt in the liquid heat. But then he would be alone again. Experiments could be had another time. They felt the rumbling beneath their feet. In minutes, the center of the pool would erupt with thick gusts of water and smoke. If they stayed here, parts of their skin could be flayed off by the eruption. Logan grabbed Jacob's hand and pulled him back, away from the siren song of the bright blue water with its sunny yellow ring that could become a weapon with a single push. Afternoon was fading into evening when they heard the noise, only partially hidden by the muffled roar of the waterfall, something large within the woods. Jacob called out, but he received no answer. He told Logan not to be afraid. 
it was most likely a bear that was just looking for food. Logan shivered, and Jacob tried not to laugh at how easy it was to unnerve him. Logan was fidgeting with his hands, and his eyes kept glancing farther up the trail, where the shadows of the trees were growing longer. Once again, Jacob called into the abyss. Nothing answered him. He shouldn't have found it a comfort, but he did now. No one to catch him. Nothing to stop him. He told Logan they should keep moving. The other man followed behind him silently. Gone was the partnership that could only be found in the woods. Jacob was quite good at reading people, and he wondered what had caused Logan's sudden change of mood. Jacob had given nothing away. He was the perfect picture of privileged frivolity, slumming it with a lower-class gent. But if he was beginning to suspect something, Jacob would have to accelerate his plans. Jacob nodded up to their campsite with a smile, urging Logan to go on ahead. Logan looked concerned for Jacob's welfare, as he'd been leading the whole way and he promised to get the fire going. Jacob nodded gratefully, watching the man's retreat the way a wolf tracked a deer. Time to pounce. He stepped forward, a secret smile on his lips. Suddenly, a barrage of rocks, moving like some strange primordial creature, descended on Jacob. He barely had time to breathe before a large one bounced from a bump in the hill and came right for him, knocking him backwards into the river. The last thing he saw was Logan taking off his coat to go in after him. Near the base of the lower falls is Uncle Tom's Trail. It's a rough path that follows the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone and is known for its rock slides, both man-made and naturally occurring. In 1917, Logan Norris and his hiking companion, John Havakost, were surprised by a slide on Uncle Tom's Trail. One of the rocks knocked Havakost into the river, Norris jumped into the river and dragged John's body out before calling for aid. Two doctors happened to be nearby and tried to help. John was taken to Mammoth Hospital and died the next day as a result of a compound fracture to his skull. Both men had been verbally warned about the rocks, and there were several signs posted in the area. But Park Superintendent Charles Lindsay vowed to hang even more signs after the incident. While he believed the markers could help, he also knew it would not deter tourists from taking chances on the trails. Over time, Lindsay's words would prove true, time and time again. The causes of death in Yellowstone range from rock slides to poisonous plants to heart attacks caused by high elevation. But as we'll see next, there are some deaths in the park that are far more sinister and far stranger. Now, back to the story. Yellowstone Falls is a convenient place to dump a body. The currents are dangerously fast, and the steep drop allows for evidence to be easily obfuscated. Eight murders have been committed at Yellowstone National Park, and there have been several suspicious deaths as well. 
including a potential murder-suicide between a father and his 13-year-old son and a park employee who accidentally slipped into a geyser despite having worked in the area for over three years. People have described the falls as having a strange sense of sadness, a weight that becomes gravity if you get too close to the edge. Pippa was going to ask her boyfriend to marry her. Her mother would have hated the idea, but it was 1973 now. A scout liked an independent woman, and that was exactly what Pippa was. She had bought the ring a few months ago, but Scout was busy with work, so she'd convinced him to go on a vacation. No distractions, no work. Just the two of them. They'd fall in love all over again. They'd taken her VW bus up to Yellowstone for camping. Scout had never liked her bus, but he at least saw its usefulness here. They could sleep in the back and look out at the stars. As the glittering lights shone down on them, she would turn to him and ask the question she'd been waiting years to bring up. But first, there was a hike. Scout loved waterfalls, and Pippa was excited to experience some of the most famous ones in America with him. She was used to the steep hills of San Francisco, but walking uphill in the wilderness was different. The incline felt gentler, but it was harder on her legs at the same time. Her lungs were starting to burn from the effort. Scout pulled his sweatband off and handed it to her to sop up the sweat that was falling into her eyes. When her vision was finally clear, she stopped for a moment to take in the lush green all around them. She reached out to give Scout his sweatband back, but he was gone. Instead, there was a thin man standing in front of her. He wore a white silken tunic that made his slender frame look longer than it was. His feet were barefoot, and his blonde white hair flowed over his shoulders as a peaceful breeze caressed them. He took a step towards Pippa. When his feet touched the ground, his legs bent out to the sides and his head fell backward at a disturbing angle. Pippa reached out to help and found herself gripping Scout instead. The other man was gone. She tried to play it off as a misstep, but she could tell that he didn't believe her. He'd fretted the whole way down that the climb might be too difficult for a first-timer. Her cheeks flushed crimson with embarrassment and frustration. But Scout, because he knew her, because he loved her, decided to let it go. Just be careful, he said, locking his eyes with hers. It's just us out here. As they continued, Pippa saw flashes of white coming through the trees. But as the trees opened, to reveal the top of the majestic upper falls, her fears were washed away in warm light and white water. The sky was cornflower blue, and the rush of the flowing cascade and the glow of the noonday sun made her feel like she could almost touch the sky. She peered towards the fall's edge, 
filled with a dizzying sense of wonder. And there was the man, again, waiting where the water met the air and began to fall. His hair moved with the wind, but the rest of his body seemed frozen in time, suspended, serene. Even though he was about to drop into a churning ivory abyss, Pippa couldn't look away. His mouth never opened, but she could hear the man calling to her. He needed help. There was something pulling on the man, and someone else needed to cut him free. Pippa could do that. She tried to step closer to the man, but something was holding her back. There was a weight across her stomach, keeping her in place. She struggled against it, but it would not leave her. Even as she began to lose her footing, Pippa reared back and slammed her weight forward. The force released her. And then she was falling. As she sputtered and struggled in the rushing water, Pippa remembered that she hadn't come here alone. There was someone. They were important to her, although she could not remember who they were. The whole of her vision had been swallowed by the floating man. A strange feeling of serenity overtook her. She was filled with a single driving purpose. She would save the man, and so save herself. She was nearing him, finally, but she could not see the strings. The man turned his gaze to meet Pippa's, revealing eyes that were a milky white with no pupil or iris. The world seemed to stop for a moment, hanging, suspended. No sound or motion, just a blazing sun as gravity waited patiently to take its due. The man opened his mouth, and she could see the splashing of water inside. Pippa reached out to him, but he slipped through her fingers as they both plummeted into the white spray and crushing water. She flung out her arms, trying to reach up to the man as he fell, but he only looked at her, impassive, with those white eyes. Panic hit her almost as hard as the water did, the bones in her legs shattered with the impact, and she found it hard to breathe for a moment. Black dots filled her vision, and she struggled to stay focused. Pippa's eyes opened. Swirling stars danced around a dark night sky. There was something tangled around her. She twisted and turned, and suddenly reality shifted into focus. It wasn't night at all. That was just the after-effects of shock. The sun beat down on her mercilessly, and she was trapped inside a jumble of tree branches floating down the river. The sounds of screams followed her movements. She looked to the side and saw Scout running down the trail, trying to keep pace with her. She lifted her arms towards him. Her body pulsed with pain, but she managed a faint yell of help as the current kicked up. Pippa watched as Scout ran farther down the trail. He was breaking through the tree line and heading towards the water. At first, she thought he was coming for her, 
But as he waded into the cold depths, Scout headed towards the cliff of the next falls. The man that Pippa had seen earlier was standing on the edge. He watched Scout with a serene smile as he fought the current to get closer to him. Pippa tried to propel herself forward, but she was stuck. The force that had only moments before seemed far too fast was now far too slow. She yelled at Scout to turn back, but he stepped into the arms of the man and began to fall. The branch that was carrying her struck some other debris, and she was propelled through the air, floating just as the man had. Her arms windmilled, and her feet kicked uselessly as the wind whistled in her ears. She could see Scout looking up at her, his eyes adoring, trusting, seeing her and only her as they fell together. One last time. In 1973, Christiane Chabonis fell from the Upper Falls, floated down the Yellowstone River, and then plunged again down the Lower Falls. She's the only person to plummet down both sets of falls in the history of Yellowstone National Park. Lawrence Shippard witnessed Chabonis's fall from the top of the Upper Falls. He was relieved to see her surface after the 109-foot drop and later told authorities that her head and one of her arms was still in view. But by the time he got close enough to help, she had disappeared. A few minutes later, Frederick Barr watched her body drop 308 feet from the top of the Lower Falls and land face down in the Yellowstone River. Medical experts were unable to determine how she died, whether from the first fall or a subsequent drowning. Yellowstone's upper and lower falls have been known to have a strong pull on those who have tried to take a closer look at what might lie below. In 1891, Henry Esterbrook wrote, The waters have divided into three emerald strands, which only began to braid together ere they blossomed into foam that flung itself headlong into the abyss. How far did it fall? I was curious to know. And so, catching firm hold of the railing, craned my neck beyond the verge. Holy Moses! I started back, every fiber trembling in a fright. What had I seen? I scarcely know. It was like gazing into the burning bush, the secret places of the earth, into the arcana of heaven. I remember that it was so high, so very high, that my eyes swam in their sockets and seemed to drop out of my head. Yellowstone's attendance numbers always spike in the summer when the rushing water and spray are particularly appealing. The park doesn't close in winter, though much of the area becomes impassable by conventional vehicles. The area is picturesque, but if something goes wrong, you'll be waiting even longer to get help. As we'll see in a moment, that wait gets long when the cold sets in. Now, back to the story. Yellowstone National Park becomes a land of snowmobiles in winter, 
as the conventional roads are impossible to keep open thanks to the heavy snowfall. One can travel from the Mammoth entrance to the park to Yellowstone's accommodations at 7,300 feet, the Old Faithful Snow Lodge, on a snow coach, a heated bus with massive snow tires. Once you reach the lodge, the real adventure begins. Winter safaris are offered along with ski and snowshoeing tours and courses, some of which take guests to the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, where they can view the lower Yellowstone Falls, now completely frozen, so the water appears to be hovering in midair. Visitors can explore the park using rented snowmobiles, and most national parks function on a level of trust with their visitors to both leave things as they found them and keep themselves safe. But in the winter, that promise can very easily be broken. Michael was bored. After his seventh time asking if they were there yet, his mother fished out a Mattel football handheld and told him he could play until they'd made it to the famed Yellowstone Falls. Michael grumbled about having to use his dad's old handheld when his friends were playing with Game Boys. But his mom wasn't interested in his very well-reasoned argument that a Game Boy was a sound investment because he would never need another toy again. Still, he gave it a shot. The controls were a nightmare, but it was exactly the right level of difficulty to poke Michael's stubborn streak. Face buried in the game, the 11-year-old barely noticed as they passed the wooden signs welcoming them to Yellowstone. His parents set up their RV for the night. It was too cold to eat outdoors, so they stayed inside, eating warmed beans and hot dogs. Michael and his brother Luke stared longingly at the powdery white snow. Their mother promised that tomorrow they'd get to spend the entire day outside. They just had to make it through the night. Michael's nose felt frozen. He tried to pull his blanket over his head, but it was too short. Annoyed, Michael got up and rooted around the RV, looking for the handheld. He could just play it until he fell asleep again, and maybe the cold wouldn't bother him this time. But he found the keys to the snowmobile first. If he was going to freeze, he might as well freeze doing something cool. He pulled the keys out and crept inside. His teeth chattered against the harsh winds as he crept back to the RV and unhooked the snowmobile. He could barely lift it, but he managed to get it down. Michael put the key in the ignition and took off, careening around the area with wild abandon. He loved the rise and fall of the vehicle, how each small bump had him flying through the air, legs squeezed tight around the seat. He felt the knots in his stomach as he dropped back down, and he screamed with excitement. This was way better than a hand-me-down game. The snowmobile was surprisingly hard to steer. He swerved around cars and picnic tables dusted in frost. His heart beat loudly as he raced around the campground, but he found himself letting out a wild whoop of pride. The snowmobile slid farther along the ice, Several parked cars were up ahead. The hand pulls stopped working. He pushed hard for the brakes, but they had already given out. He tried to move the bars in different directions, but they stayed locked in place. The cars were getting bigger in his vision, 
swallowing up everything else. Michael closed his eyes, as if shutting them would prevent what was about to happen. The nose of the machine bumped the car, gently leaving a small silver scratch. Spooked, Michael turned the keys off and pushed the snowmobile back towards the RV. He lifted it up and returned it to its place. The fear of nearly hitting a car left him too tired to be bothered by the cold, and he quickly fell asleep in his bed. In the morning, Michael, Luke, and their father climbed aboard the snowmobile and went gliding up the trails. The cold air burned Michael's lips as they went up the hill. Their father was surprised to see that the tank was out of gas so soon and headed back down to purchase some more. Michael tried to sneak away while his dad was talking, worried that his guilt might be too obvious. The silver scratch was bigger in the light of day, and Michael was hoping that no one would notice. Michael's thoughts were pulled away from the scratched car when his brother Luke ran up to him, tapping him on the shoulder. Luke wanted to race, and Michael could never let his brother win at anything. They took off running through the snow, kicking up clouds of powder as they went. Michael laughed as Luke's shoes got stuck in a snowbank, and the smaller boy catapulted forward into the snow. Michael pulled farther ahead. He was running, then sliding out of control as he hit a patch of ice. The trees blurred around him as he fell forward onto the snowbank. A few spots of skin that weren't covered by his snow gear burned from the cold. Michael swallowed back a handful of tears. He was 11 now. 11-year-olds didn't cry. Luke taunted Michael as he caught up and pulled ahead. Michael's knees stung and his elbows felt stiff. He couldn't let Luke win, but he was having trouble getting up. The wind pushed against him in a large gust. Michael just barely made it to his feet, fighting the wind as he took a few more steps. Luke was only an orange dot through the trees now. Michael had to pass him. He shook off the snow and took off running again. The wind was heavier now and he was struggling to run against both the gusts and the snow. He pushed himself to go faster and faster. He heard Luke shrieking with excitement as the wind urged him forward. Michael pumped his legs harder. His whole body hurt with the motion, but he kept going. The cold air felt like icicles piercing his lungs. Ahead of him, Luke started to slow. This was his chance. Harnessing the last bits of adrenaline in his body, Michael sprinted towards his brother. The orange of Luke's coat passed by him at a dizzying speed. Michael felt the change underneath his feet, from snow to ice. He tried to slow his motion by pulling his feet to the side, but it didn't work. He was still going too fast. And then... He was flying through the air. Michael's heart raced in his chest. For one small moment, he felt weightless, more alive than he'd ever been in all his short years. But then, Michael looked down. A jagged mass of ice, almost 30 feet long, stretched up at him. Its spikes opened like fingers, grasping and clawing. The knots in his stomach kicked in. 
But there were no screams of excitement this time. His sounds of terror were swallowed by the wind. When 11-year-old David Childers fell to his death on February 25, 1990, he was the first casualty of Yellowstone Falls to occur in winter. His parents, Mary Beth and Robert, filed a wrongful death suit against Yellowstone National Park with requested damages set at $10 million. They claimed that there weren't enough signs posted along the trail to indicate the danger their children faced in the environment. Unfortunately, Mary Beth's own testimony put her nearly 500 feet away from David when he passed. And Robert was at the fishing bridge outpost collecting fuel. Neither parent was able to see their children as they ran around near the viewing platform for the Lower Falls. In 1993, U.S. District Court Judge Jack Shanstrom ruled against the Childers family, writing that Mrs. Childers negligently permitted the boys to get out of her sight. While it is not reasonable to expect that 11 and 13-year-old boys would hold their mother's hand while walking down a trail, common sense dictates that youngsters in Yellowstone should be kept within sight. This basic precaution was not followed in this case. In 1891, a visitor to the park named Edward Wessel described the water within the falls as losing itself in the vapory grave beneath. There had been no recorded deaths at the falls at that time, but in retrospect, it reads as a strange kind of prophecy, a promise the falls made and then kept. While Yellowstone is the United States' first national park, it would be followed by 57 other national environmental reserves, including prairies, coastal areas, and caves. The mission has always been the same, to preserve natural wonders and wildlife that have been put at risk by the swiftly encroaching forces of industry and development. President Theodore Roosevelt once said, we have fallen heirs to the most glorious heritage a people ever received, and each one must do his part if we wish to show that the nation is worthy of its good fortune. One could argue he was speaking of the opinion of the people around the world, but when you stand atop Yellowstone Falls, something deeper seems to wake, demanding tribute, a force even greater than the gravity that pulls the churning waters of the Yellowstone River down into a deep and deadly canyon. And all our advancements, our great cities, our technology, our ruthlessly efficient ability to strip these lands of their resources and leave them raw and bare like open wounds. All our advancements cannot save us when gravity kicks in. Once you see Yellowstone Falls, it's hard to resist its call, even when it pulls you over the edge. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. 
If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richet. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>